We're in Matthew chapter 6, focusing on the Lord's Prayer today. It's, um, it's actually my favorite topic to talk about, to preach about. It's actually on prayer. And um, in, in general, uh, most people feel really bad about their prayer life. Uh, if I were to ask you as you're walking out this building, how's your prayer life doing? We'd go, ah, oh, can we talk about something else? Because prayer is hard and prayer is difficult. And yet, prayer is, is the air that we breathe in our relationship with God. And if we don't have a life with God in prayer, we really don't have a life with God at all. And so Jesus has some strong, important words for us as we, as we consider what it means to be his follower, as we consider what it means to pray. And one of the greatest gifts that Jesus has given us is the Lord's Prayer. He's given us the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, to serve as a framework, to serve as a way of seeing the world and relating to God. And this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, if you will, is so simple, a three-year-old can memorize it. My daughter Karis, when she was three, she's nine years old right now, but when she was three, before we would go to bed, I would teach her the Lord's Prayer over and over again until she got it, and we would pray it every night before we went to bed. Surely there were some times where she would say things like, this give us this day our daily trespasses, where um, I'm like, no, honey, that's, no, we don't want daily trespasses. We don't want to ask God for sin, honey. Um, or she would say, forgive us our trespasses as we forget those who trespass against us. And, no, let's forget, we want to forgive those who trespass against us. She's like, no, no, I want to see it my way. And so uh, the prayer is so simple, a, a three-year-old can memorize it, and yet it is so profound that scholars and theologians have written thousands upon thousands of pages on this one prayer. And so over the next two weeks, today I'm going to focus on verse 9 and verse 10. Next week I'll focus on verses 11 through verse 13 and, 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 and really what it means to be people of prayer. What does it mean to follow Jesus in this way? And my hope is that during the course of this week, that you would pray to our Father, you would pray the Lord's Prayer, but not mindlessly, but meditatively, reflectively, prayerfully. That these words that we pray will actually have a, a, a substance to it in your life, and that you would be seeing these words as the very framework of following Jesus. Everything that we need to follow Jesus is found in this prayer that Jesus gave us. My hope is that throughout the course of a given day, that we would pause to slowly pray it to allow the life of God to so intersect and impact our lives together. Let's pray this, our Father. Let's pray it together uh, as we, and then I'll, I'll, I'll preach on some of these verses here together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to begin my time with a quote from John of the Cross, one of the great mystical writers of Christianity. And he writes that the spiritual life is all about making space for God in our lives, a space shaped for Christ to fill because his greatest desire is to give himself completely to us. I want you to hold on to that for a second and, 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 and hold on to the magnitude of this truth here. The spiritual life is all about making space for God, 
a space shaped for Christ to fill because, listen to this, his greatest desire is to give himself completely to us. God's greatest desire is to give himself completely to us, but he needs space. This is the essence of prayer. The creation of space in our lives, the creation of space in our souls, the creation of space in our hearts, so that God can completely give himself to us. And what I want to unpack today is this simple idea that until we learn to pray like Jesus, we can't live like Jesus. Until we learn to pray like him, we can't live like him. And so Jesus takes us into prayer here in his Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching about what it means to be his follower, what does it mean to be invited into life, into the kingdom of God. And up to this point, he has addressed many things. And up to this point, we have preached on many things. We've looked at his Beatitudes. We've explored what it means to be poor in spirit. We've explored what it means to mourn. We've explored what it means to be meek. We've explored what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We've explored what it means to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. We've explored what it means to be salt and light, his witnesses in the world. We've explored our own anger. We've explored our own lust. We've explored what it means to be true to our word, our yes being yes, our no being no. We've explored what it means to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and now we move on to prayer. And it makes sense why prayer is situated at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. It's midway, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying, unless you pray well, you cannot live well. Unless you have a life with me, it's impossible for you to live like I live. And so the measure of our life in God is based on the quality of our life with God in prayer. The quality of our life with God, the quality of our life is connected to our life with God in prayer. Now, in Matthew 6, there's a a piece that's missing that we see fleshed out in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus teaches this prayer as well. In Luke chapter 11, we see a little bit of context that's missing. The disciples in Luke 11 have seen Jesus. They've they've, they've walked with him. They, They see the way he prays. They see the way he loves. They see his peace. They see his joy. They see his authority. They see his way, the ways that he's able to cast out demons. They see the ways that he's able to forgive his enemies. And so they make one connection. They say the only way that you can live with this kind of love, you can live with this kind of peace, live with this kind of joy, live with this kind of forgiveness, live with this kind of authority, live with the power to cast out demons, the only connection and conclusion that they came to is this. You must have a life with God in prayer. Because the only way you can do all that is you are connected to something greater than we can see. And so they say, Lord, this is the only time that the disciples say, teach us something. Lord, teach us how to pray. This is the only time. They never say, Lord, teach us how to preach. They never say, Lord, teach us how to cast out demons. But what was recorded in the Bible, the only thing that they asked Jesus to teach them is to teach them how to pray. Now, this is a strange request because the people asking Jesus to pray as young Jewish boys would be taught how to pray. They grew up praying. The average Jewish a person would have entire books of the Bible memorized. 
They memorized Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the book of Numbers. They had that memorized. I mean, we're struggling with Jesus wept, but they had entire books of the Bible memorized. If anyone would have prayed, it would be them. They would go to church. They would memorize prayers. They would say their prayers, but, but they looked at their own life and then they looked at Jesus and they said, the way we're praying is not getting the kind of results you're getting. You're doing something different. Teach us what you're doing. Teach us how to pray. And so Jesus says, okay, but before Jesus teaches them how to pray, Jesus teaches them how not to pray. And it's important that you know how not to pray before you learn how to pray. There was a, a show that came out some years ago. I don't know if it's still out. It's called What Not to Wear. What not to wear. Where well-meaning friends would see their friends who's struggling just in the fashion world, and they would say, you need some help. You can't be wearing that all the time. We're going to bring in a consultant. They bring in two people there, and they, they go into their closet. The first thing they do before they take them shopping is they get rid of some stuff. You can't do this. You can't wear this. You can't wear this. All right, let's go shopping. Let's get a new wardrobe for you. This is what Jesus is doing. He's going into our spiritual closet, as it were. He's saying, you can't pray like this. You can't pray like that. Before I teach you how to pray, you got to get rid of some old ways of praying. You got to think about the ways that you've been shaped in prayer, dismiss that, and then receive what I have for you. Jesus says, this is how you are not to pray in the verses right before he gives the Lord's prayer. In verse 5, he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus here is coming against two kinds of of prayer. The first way of praying is to be noticed. So he says, when you go on Queens Boulevard, don't pray to be noticed. When you cross the street and you're hanging at the mall, don't pray in a sense to be noticed. You say, Rich, who's going to do that? You might not do that on Queens Boulevard. We might do it on social media, though, where we're trying to be seen. We want people to know we have a life with God. We're spiritual. We pray. We do all that stuff. And I'm not coming against praying on social media and posting prayers on social media, but it's about the heart. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who just want to be seen. Don't pray for show. Then he says, don't pray like the pagans. Don't be babbling like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. And in that time, when pagans prayed, they would pile up as many names of the God they were praying to, hoping that at least one of the names of the God would get their attention. And so they throw every name out there, hoping that at least one of them would stick. And then God would hear them. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't pray for show and don't pray with formulas. Another way of saying it is this, don't pray super religiously and don't pray superstitiously. Don't, you, you don't have to use all the fancy words to get God's attention. And, and, and alpha and omega and beginning before even and sovereign of the universe and using King James language and all that stuff. God's like, I understand what you're saying right there. We, we can get super religious or we, get, or we can get superstitious where we think if we could just have the right formula 
I would have gotten the parking spot. If I, if I, if I just prayed the particular way, then God, as if God is a kind of cosmic slot machine that if we just say the right things, we'll get what we want. He says, don't pray super religiously and don't pray superstitiously. He says, if you're going to pray like I do, if you're going to pray that brings about true spiritual fruit, pray like this, then he gives the Lord's prayer. Now, when Jesus says pray like this, I think he means it in two ways. I think he literally means pray these words, pray like this, but not in an absent-minded kind of a way. I think we, I, I think we should take these words and internalize them, memorize them, and then from the deepest place of our being, pray them to God, very literally, these words. But in addition to that, the, the prayer is a framework for the entire spiritual life and what it means to follow Jesus. And every verse there is an opportunity for us to do inventory, to take a look at our own lives, not just to pray it fast through, but to, 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 to see it as about accessing God and allowing God to access parts of our lives. Jesus says, pray like this, and he begins by saying, our Father, our Father. The first word there is, is our, and to pray the word our in the Lord's Prayer is countercultural. And, and, and it, but it's everything about being a Christian. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, my Father in heaven. I, I, want, I want to discourage you from saying that. I want to discourage you even when you're by yourself and you're looking around and no one's here. My Father in heaven. I want to discourage you from doing that. Because to say our is very intentional. And Jesus is very intentional, basically saying, this is not just, just about you and God. That you're part of something larger than yourself. That you don't have a corner on God. It's our Father. To say our reminds us that, that although we might have a personal relationship with God, we don't have a private relationship with God. That our relationship with God is one that is personal and communal. We belong to a larger family. Our. When we say our, it speaks to the radical nature of reconciliation. We believe that to say our means that God says there's room for everyone at the table. That we don't determine who's who's in and who's out. It's our Father. When we say our, what what, what it's doing, it's, it's, it's saying to us that ultimately what unites us is not that we agree on everything theologically. That what unites us is not that we vote the same way. That what unites us is not that we think the same things. What unites us is one Father, our Father. This is one of the reasons why we are to learn and, 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 and fellowship, especially with other Christians from different traditions. It's one of the reasons why we need Presbyterians and Pentecostals. It's one of the reasons why we need our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters. Why? Because it's not just mine. It's ours. Our Father. Why do we work for reconciliation? Why do we work to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers? Why do we have a life outside of our own private needs and our own private wants? Because it's our. And so Jesus says, begin by saying our. Then he goes, Father. The emphasis here on the word Father. Our Father. And when Jesus introduces this word Father here, it's countercultural as well. 
Because the majority of Jewish prayers that Jesus would be surrounded by would begin not with our Father. They would begin with words like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. Or they would begin by saying sovereign of the universe. Now, do I believe, Lord, the, the, our Father is God is the ruler of the universe? Of course I do. Do I believe he's sovereign of the universe? Of course I do. But when you look at it, 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 it gives the, the, the sense that God is highly exalted, powerful, and way out there. Like he's far. He's way, you can't touch him. He is way up there. There's no way to reach him. And we see this consistently stated throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. When you look at the book of Psalms, you see that the word father, God as father, is only seen three times in the book of Psalms. He's seen more as uh, as savior more than 100 times. As deliverer, more than 50 times. He's seen as king over 40 times. If, if you read the Old Testament, you see that over and over again, God is, uh, is unapproachable. That no one would dare to say his personal name. That the people of Israel would pr- prefer to substitute various alternative names rather than risk the mistake of mispronouncing God's name. And so God was often seen as distant, way out there. What makes this also difficult for us to say father is, is the way that our relationship with our own biological fathers has impacted our vision of God. At my time at New Life here, I've had many conversations with people who have said, um, I'll address God as Lord, but I can't address him as father. That I have a hard time calling him father. Or if, or, or if we do call him father, he, he's, a, he's a distant father. He's way out there. But I want you to see that, that Jesus, Jesus lets us know, regardless of your relationship with your biological father, Scripture reveals the truth that to be in relationship with God is to be in relationship with the most loving, compassionate, tender father. And, and he says, if you guys are going to pray like I do, you have to see God a particular way. The word father there is the word Abba, the word Papa, the word Papi, the word Daddy, the word Father. And Jesus reminds us, and this might be the most important revelation that Jesus gives us, that God is not just a supreme being way out there. God is this intimate Father who longs to embrace us. Now, this is difficult for many of us. When some of us pray, when we think of Father and coming to prayer, We think about God as father who's disappointed with us. God as a father who's criticizing us. But Jesus says, no, no, the father that we pray to is is a warm, embracing, loving, tender, forgiving father. And the quality of your spiritual life is based fundamentally on our vision of God. Who is God? The quality of your life is fundamentally based on your vision of who God is. If if the God that you project from your mind and your experience onto the Father of Jesus is one who is always irritated with you, you're back for prayer again. What do you want? If the God that we relate to is not happy to see us, why should we pray? Why should I be motivated to pray? But Jesus is letting us know, I want to give you a profound revelation of who this God is. This God is Abba, the God who can't wait to see you. The God that when you show up to pray, he's so happy that you're there. 
That he longs to hear you. He longs to pour out grace to you. And this is a God who, who loves you no, no matter what. His love is unconditional for you. We see this most profoundly expressed in the prodigal son story, don't we? Where we see two sons and a father, and, and, and one of the sons says, Dad, give me my inheritance, the portion of my inheritance, which in that culture essentially meant drop dead, Dad, give me my stuff. I want to hang out. I want to party. And so he says, drop dead. Can I get my stuff? And the father gives him his portion of the inheritance. He drives out. He goes into a, a faraway land. He spends all his money. He parties like crazy. He does whatever he wants. And then he runs out of money. He runs out of money. There's a famine in the land. He can't get a job. He's eating what pigs are eating, which was against Jewish culture. He says to himself, man, this is terrible. Maybe I can go back to my father's house. At least I can be a servant there. I don't have to be a son. Maybe I can just be a servant there. He picks up his stuff. He goes on a long journey back to his father. His father sees him in the distance. And when the father sees him in the distance, the father starts running after his son. Now, if I'm the younger son and I see my father, I'm running back. I, he's, he's, he's back after. I got to get out of here. No, no, no. But when the father runs after him, it's not to judge him, but to embrace him. One scholar said that he runs to his son, not just because he was happy to see him. He runs to his son because the villagers were going to stone him because he was not honoring his father, which was against the commandments. The father comes to him and he embraces him. He gets him into the house. He says, put the best robe on this kid. Give him a ring. Give him some sandals. Let's throw a party. He, he says, Let, let's kill the fatted calf. The fatted calf was the animal that was, that was prepared for the next feast, the big wedding feast, a, a feast that every villager would, would, would enjoy. It was typically like a marriage feast. Imagine the father saying, uh, let me use a modern-day analogy. Where there's, a, there's a wedding next week. You already got the wedding cake. Your son comes back. You say, let's cut the wedding cake. Oh, we got to celebrate. You got to celebrate. Uh-uh. What do you mean cut the wedding cake? That was prepared for the wedding. No, no. My son is back. It's time to celebrate. This is how they would have heard that. This is crazy. He, he, he loves this kind of stuff. And what I love about the father and the prodigal son, which shows us the heart of Jesus, the heart of the father of Jesus, is the prodigal son returns not because he's repentant. He returns to survive. He doesn't return because his, he, he, oh, dad, I'm sorry. And, and all. he goes, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm so hungry. I, I, I can go back and, and eat. And yes, when he's on the road back, he starts making up a speech, Dad, I'm sorry, and all that there. But, but why did he return? Not because he felt bad for hurting his father's heart. He returned to eat. And you know what the father says? Come anyway. You know what we say? No, no, you better be sorry. <laughs> Prove it. And then I'll let you back in the house. Demonstrate it. But the father says, you're hungry? Come, come on in. I know where to get a good meal for you. What I love about the father as well, that Jesus, the, the, the Abba, is that the father runs out to rebellious sons and takes them. And, and, and he runs out to resentful sons as well. The, the elder son is, he's upset. A party for him? 
I've been here all the time. I said all my prayers. I mowed the lawn. I washed the dishes. I did all the things you told me to do. You never throw me a party. The son doesn't, the elder son doesn't want to come into the feast. He's hanging outside. He's on the stoop. No, I'm not coming in. The father leaves the party. This is a God who leaves the party for you. He leaves the party to see his resentful son. And he says, everything that I have is already yours. Come, let's, your, your brother who was lost is now found. He was dead, but now he's alive. Come on, let, let's enjoy the feast together. But what you see is God consistently, whether you're rebellious or whether you're resentful, whether your heart is hard, your heart, your heart is hard, or whether you've been doing whatever, God, this is the Abba who comes after you. Jesus says, this is the God that we pray to. And your vision of God will determine your spiritual life. And Jesus gives us the vision of a God who's known as Abba. It's out of that place where Jesus now gives the first request. And he says, our Father who is in heaven, and then he says, hallowed be your name. And here we have actually the first request in the Lord's Prayer. This is the first request. Another way of saying this is, Lord, may your name be hallowed. And I want you to see something. This is the, the first request of the prayer. And if we were crafting the prayer, we probably would not have done it this way. If we were creating the prayer, we probably would have said, Our Father who is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Like we're so preoccupied with what we don't have, we would have went right for the bread. Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Don't we pray like that? Hey, God, how you doing? Uh, I need some stuff, you know? Or we would say, give us this day our daily bread, our Father in heaven. Like the, the emphasis on giving my stuff. I need some help. But Jesus, the first request says, no, it's, it's not give us this day our daily bread. It's hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying to pray like him means that our desire to see God's name hallowed must be our first request. Another way of saying it is this. Lord, may your glory and your name be the first desire of my heart. May your glory and your name be the first desire of my heart. The word hallowed means to be regarded as holy, sacred, highly respected, glorified. To hallow God's name. Now, in ancient times, people would use other words to call God, and so, so as not to misuse the name or to reverence the name because it was too sacred, people would use things like this, G-D, and you've seen other people who do this. In the Jewish uh, community, I've, I've met Christians who do this as well, and it's the attempt to, to hold God's name as sacred, as revered. But I want you to notice something within its context, why Jesus gives us this prayer and this request, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches us to pray this very intentionally, and the first request should flow not from our needs, but for his name. Lord, what you're saying, God, God wants to pray like Jesus means that our hearts are filled with these words. Lord, may your name be treasured, cherished, and loved. That the primary orientation of our hearts is to see God's name treasured and cherished and loved to see his name and character 
honored. The first petition is about God's glory. Now, this is important because Jesus, right before this, he's critiquing people for doing things for their glory. I want you to see the juxtaposition. Right before the Lord's Prayer, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. They give to the poor, they announce it. They pray loud on the streets. They want people to see them. What are they doing? They're living for their glory. They're living for their name. And and we have a way of hallowing our own names. That the objective of our life is us. It's my goals. It's my dreams. It's my achievements. It's my possessions. It's It's my security. And Jesus is saying to pray this part of the prayer means that our, our vision, our values, our priorities must be reimagined. Not my name, your name. Not my glory, your glory. Some five years ago, 2013, Oxford Dictionary came out with the word of the year. The word of the year was selfie. And for those of you not familiar with this word, I'd be hard-pressed to find any of you who's not familiar with this word here. But it's a picture taken of yourself uh, by yourself. Google reports that over 17 million selfies are posted each week on social media. Now, uh, I'm not here to condemn selfies. I I have taken my share of selfies in the past there, and so um, I'm not here to condemn. I'm I'm not here to condemn, all right? But what I will say is that the the rise of selfies in our culture speaks to what sociologists are identifying as a rise of narcissism. That in our culture, that, that people, to get people to see us, to recognize us, to affirm us, that this becomes the driver of our lives. There was an article called The Selfie Syndrome, how social media is making us narcissistic. And the central thought in the article is that, is that people use social media as a platform to glorify their best selves. It's one of the ways, the insidious, subtle ways we hallow our own names. Instead of living for God's name, we want our name, our lives to be treasured, to be loved. And we do it from a place of disorder. Because deep down inside, I think what's beneath these desires and beneath our, beneath our narcissism is a deep desire to be seen by God, to be loved by God, to be affirmed by God, which is why we are to begin with our Father. The Father sees you. The Father loves you. The Father affirms you. And when you you receive your validation from the Father, no longer do you need to live hallowing your own name because you're living for His name. Now, what does this mean for us practically, to hallow God's name? Well, it means that the desire of our heart is for God's glory and God's name. It's a prayer that gets to our motives. And so some of you, you, you've been gifted and privileged with a great education, with college degrees, with postgraduate degrees and the like. To to hallow God's name means that, that we steward that for God's glory, not for the glory of our name. For some of you, you've been successful in business. You've obtained status and power on your job. To, to pray, hallowed be your name, means that we're using that power, we're using that success for the glory of God's name, not for our name. It applies to the way we manage our money. To make money is not a, uh, is not a bad thing at all, but to make money for my own name is inconsistent with this prayer. 
To, to pray, hallowed be your name, means, Lord, whatever money you've entrusted to me, the resources you've entrusted to me, may I be generous with it, may I steward with it for the glory of your name. Why do I volunteer? Why do I serve? Do I do it so that people can see me and pat me on the back? Or am I doing it for the glory of your name? In short, are my decisions based on hallowing God's name or glorifying my name? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then let me close with this. Jesus then says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This part of the prayer might be the most countercultural part of the prayer, especially about Christianity. This part of the prayer seriously challenges the common understandings we have about Christian faith. And so to pray this part of the prayer is to recognize at least two things. And I want you to see this very clearly in the text. That Jesus is calling us in this prayer to be more concerned about his kingdom coming on earth than with us going to heaven. I want you to hold on to this for a second because we're not taught this. We're taught that the end goal of Christianity is going to heaven. When you die, Jesus says nothing about that in this passage here. He actually prays the opposite. He says, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the goal of Christianity is not going to heaven when you die. The goal of Christianity, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is God making all things new. At, at the end, the last stop of our lives is not heaven. The last stop is a new heaven, a new earth. You're with me, aren't you? We're, we're, you're together. We're, we're, we're here. We're, but we've been taught that heaven is the way. That, and listen, when, when heaven becomes the goal of your life, you can be really silent about what's happening on earth. There's no need to be concerned about what's happening on earth because my goal is heaven. And so there's injustice. Ah, forget about it. I'm going to heaven. People being abused, don't worry about it. We're going to heaven. People in slavery, ah, don't worry about it. We're going to heaven. But Jesus doesn't tell us to pray, Lord, when things get hard, send me to heaven. He says, no, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This changes everything. Now, I want to go to heaven. You want to go to heaven. I believe that those who have died are in the presence of Jesus in heaven. But the end of the, 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 the last stop is not heaven. The last stop is a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this part of the prayer is not just about Jesus saying, don't be as focused on heaven as praying for his heaven to come to earth. This part of the prayer is, is also significant in that it's not about wishing for God's kingdom to come, but about doing our part to see it happen. I used to hear this, this prayer in, in a passive perspective. I would say it like this. God, there's a lot of problems here. Please come and fix it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And it's a very passive way of praying. Lord, there's nothing I can do. Please fix this world. That's how we typically hear that prayer. I think Jesus doesn't want us to pray it 
through the lens and through the words of passivity. He wants us to pray it through the lens of participation. Not passivity, participation. And so instead of saying, God, there's nothing we can do. So come fix the world. We need to move from that to saying, Lord, there's so much we can do, but only in your power. That's the shift to me. From, Lord, there's nothing we can do. Lord, there's so much we can do, but in your power. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, Lord. And so, and so, and so, Lord, to pray this is to move from passivity to participation. Now, ultimately, God is the one who's going to make all things new. God is the one who's going to, who's going to create a new earth, new heaven. He's going to make everything new. But in the meantime, he invites us to participate in the process. Which is why we are to be deeply rooted, planted with our feet to the ground, focusing on what's happening on earth, praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the the task of the Christian is very simple. Find out what's happening on heaven and manifest that on earth. That's what Christianity is. What's in heaven? There's joy in heaven. There's peace in heaven. There's love in heaven. There's hospitality in heaven. There's welcome in heaven. There's justice in heaven. So then as a Christian, what's happening in heaven? Amen. Okay, Lord, now how can I live that out in my life? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so my job as a Christian then is to work for the things that are already happening in heaven. Which is why Joan Chittister says these words. The person who learns to pray with the heart of God has no patience for injustice anywhere. Why? There's no injustice in heaven. (laughs) And if there's no injustice in heaven, Lord, there should not be any injustice in here. This is why. When, when children are separated from their parents at the southern border of our country, we say, no, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Why? Because in heaven, children are not separated from their parents in heaven. No, no, no. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we see racial and ethnic division and hatred, we say, no, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because in heaven, there is no racism. In heaven, there's no ethnocentrism. In, in heaven, there's no classism. In heaven, there's no sexism. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we see sickness and disease, no, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why I believe in healing prayer. This is why I believe that cancer doesn't have the last word. This is why I believe that when we anoint people with oil, we should pray with faith that God can heal people. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, may these things not be be done with my passivity. May they be done with my participation. May your kingdom come. Your will be done through me. May it be done in me. May it be done through us. Why why do we have a a health center downstairs? Because we believe there's coming a day where God would eradicate all sickness and disease. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Why are we a a church that's from over 75 nations? Because we believe there's coming a day where, where, where folks will be worshiping before the throne of God. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We are anticipating God's future right now. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we pray that this week, we're not just saying, Lord, the world is a mess. Come, fix it. I don't know what to do. I'm out of here. Fix it, though, Lord. We're saying, Lord, teach me how to participate in your kingdom coming to earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. I invite you to close your eyes for a moment. I imagine today some of you, you need God's kingdom, his power in your own life, in your marriage, in your job, in our city. That language of your kingdom come is language of longing. Lord, we're longing for the day. Do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Your kingdom come. Some of you came to church today wondering, is God for me? Wondering if God is with me? And Jesus reminds us that when we pray this, we, we're talking and communing with the God who is tender and compassionate and merciful. He's Abba. And it is this God who calls us to himself, who invites us to participate with him in his kingdom coming, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, thank you for this prayer that deeply roots us in the life of God, in the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, you've given us these very words, not just so we can mindlessly repeat them, but that these words would shape us and form us deeply. Lord, would your kingdom come in our families? For those who are sick, may your kingdom come in our bodies. For those who are without hope, may your kingdom come filling us with your hope. May your will be done. And Lord, teach us what it means to participate with you. We sing to you now words of praise words of worship and we do it in the name of Jesus Amen let's all stand let's sing together